Morning, guys. Thanks for that. Uh, Riley took my line about graduation, so I know you only have one good applause in you per morning, so I'm going to skip it, okay? Otherwise, I will feel shame and embarrassment. My name's Stephen. Um, we are in Exodus chapter 30 this morning. Um, kids, if you're still in the room, you can be dismissed to your classroom. Um, all jokes aside, graduates, congratulations, way to go. If you're a parent of a graduate in the room this morning, we just want to say welcome uh, we have loved your child who is now going off into the world, and we probably share some of the same emotions that you do uh, this weekend as they become a vital part of our church. We celebrated them last weekend, so to, to keep them from pride and being puffed up, we won't do it again. Um, but in all seriousness, we are very thankful. I do have a couple of announcements as we get started. The first is next Sunday is Family Dedication Sunday. Um, so uh, parents with young kids, this, this morning is kind of set aside, even as it's Mother's Day, for us to be able to uh, dedicate uh, not just the child, but the family before the Lord as we all participate in the, the growing up, the discipleship of the kids that God has blessed us with. The second thing is uh, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock is the uh, pilot program of uh, Marshall and Thomas's financial class. And so um, that is at 7 o'clock at Jethro's. Uh, last I heard, I think it was pretty full. Uh, I don't know if they're still taking spots. Is that true? Go, come talk to them later. I know nothing, okay? Um, you already know that, though. Um, and then lastly, this is my most favorite announcement every year. Softball's back. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it says a lot about you that I, I get more from you when I just say softball than when I do uh, when preaching the gospel. So <laughs> thanks for that. So that's uh, the 21st, so May 21st. So in, in two more Sundays uh, at 530 right back here at the park. And so we're, we're excited about that. Um, grateful. But if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and dig in. If, you're, if you've been a part of family group, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball today. Um, I can do that. So I'm, it just is what it is. Uh, in your family groups, you were studying verses 1 through 21. And about Wednesday, I felt like chapter 30 was really one message that needed to be taught together. And so we're going to actually go through the whole chapter today, um, which I hope will make sense here in a little bit. But we have verses 22 through the end, 38, that really uh, kind of sandwich with verses 1 through 10. And so for us to understand Basically, it's two sermons, um, and if we had split them, you would have gotten the same message next week, and then you guys would have been upset with me. So I think we're going to be okay. Um, but let's go ahead and read the Word of the Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then I'm going to skip down to 22, okay? And then read through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to talk about the altar of incense, and then we'll come back and do census tax, and then do the bronze basin at the end. All right? But before we do that, just a quick reminder that all of this, we've been in the tabernacle for weeks, right? And all of the details, everything in the Old Testament, everything in Exodus, all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so as we read through some of these, there's some words that I had to practice, and I literally practice them in the mirror. Um, and so if I butcher them, just know that I am a child of God too, okay? Um, but all of, all of this, all of the details, all the directions, all the stuff that God is asking the priest to do 
points us to Jesus. It finds its fullest fulfillment in him. And so from 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is writing this, and he's talking about the book of Exodus, talking about the people of Israel through the Exodus. He says, these things took place as an example, okay? So even today, as we talk through the altar of incense, is an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did, okay? So let's keep that in mind as we read from Exodus chapter 30. Let's dive in. Verse 1, you shall make an altar, on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides, and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. Under, oh, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. We're going to have a picture in a minute, and you'll be able to see this. Verse 5, You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is before the ark of the testimony. Okay, so keep it in perspective. This is in the holy place, not the most holy place. So it's before the, priest, the high priest would go into the most holy place. All right? You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay, that might be a line for us uh, to remember. Verse 22, okay, so we're skipping down to the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250. So Moses is fantastic at mathematics, okay? So takeaway number one. And 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense. Verse 28. And the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils in the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them. Remember, consecrate means to set apart, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Quick side note. Okay, we, we started this way. All of this is pointing us to Jesus, okay? I want, to, I want you to remember, so if anything that touches it becomes what? Holy, okay? So if Christ is the fulfillment, let's recall the hemorrhaging woman, okay? Do you know the story of the hemorrhaging woman? It's kind of in the, right in the middle of Jairus, who's losing his 12-year-old daughter. She becomes ill, and she, you know, the, the dad runs to Jesus, like, hey, you got to come save my child. And, and what happens? Someone touches his cloak, right? And it's the woman who'd been bleeding for as long as the girl had been alive. And instantly, she is healed. She's made what? holy because she has touched the presence, right? The holiness of the altar of incense is indwelt in God through Jesus Christ, 
Okay, so the holiness that we see in the temple, he is the perfection of the holiness. Okay, so don't miss that. Right, we see these miracles of people who are touching Jesus and they just want to flock to him. Like Jairus trusted Jesus enough to be the son of God that he was willing to leave his daughter's side and go run into the city to save her because he believed that Jesus could do it and Jesus did do it. Okay, let's go. Sorry about that. Just thought that's important. So these things become holy. Verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. Okay, so this is someone who is not a priest. You shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it is Uh, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices of stacte. These are the ones I had to practice, okay? Uh, Annika and galbanum. Full disclosure, I have no idea what those are. None, okay? There's some sort of spice. They're sweet spices, okay? Sweet spices with pure frankincense. I do know what that is. Of each shall be there... Of each, there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting. Where I shall meet with you, it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it, to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. There is weight here, there is significance, and I think for us, as we begin to really embrace the tabernacle, it's not just the the physical dimensions, right? It's not just the, the tapestry, it's not just the gold, it's not the furniture, it's not just the thing, it's also the smells, Okay, I mentioned this last week, but smells remind us, right? They, they recall our past. And, and I used an example of my grandmother, but you could use the example of like growing up playing sports and feeling like smelling fresh cut grass. You're like, it's baseball season, right? Or, or it's two-a-days at football. That was a terrible smell, by the way. It's different. It's a different kind of grass that they use for that. It's covered in ants and all the things, right? But smells help us remember and that's, this would be true for the priests. It would be the smells of the sacrifices being burned. It would be the, the smells of the incense. And I, I don't know what you think of incense, okay? Uh, so let's just, let's just stick with what the Bible is saying about incense. The priests were to use this to, as a prayer offering that would, would go up as the smoke would rise to the Lord. They believed that this would, the, the God would hear them. But the tabernacle in and of itself is a microcosm of creation. We see Eden throughout this whole place, right? But it's also a place of worship. All of this, and, and this is what I hope you learn in the tabernacle, that all of life is designed to be worship of God. All of it, right? So every part of the tabernacle has been designed for the praise of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Point blank. That's it, okay? So that's what we have to see. But this altar of incense, I think we, Dakota, you got the photo? There it is. Okay, so this is not, this is not big, right? Uh, it's like a foot and a half square and maybe three feet tall. Uh, covered in gold, okay? And there's going to come a distinction later when we talk about the bronze basin, okay, and the difference between what enters the tabernacle and what stays in the courtyard, okay? Only gold gets on the inside. Bronze, because it's third place, right, stays on the outside, okay? So what we see, though, is the poles are there to help carry it, right? They're mobile church. They're wandering through the wilderness, so everything's got to be moved, but they can't touch this. 
Okay? So they used the poles to carry it. God had preserved them in so much of this. But the altar of incense was an altar of prayer. And it symbolized the prayers of the priests ascending to the throne of God. We see this really clearly um, with Zechariah in Luke uh, 1. Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad who was a priest, okay? And in chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about uh, incense was a call to prayer. And so as the priests would walk into the temple, they would smell the incense, and immediately their affections would be drawn to the Lord, right? Because now they've been reminded not only of their responsibility, but of their role, of their task. And now today, we have tasks as the priesthood of all believers, right? This was last week's message, is the consecration that all of us as Christ followers have been called to serve as priests and so we must remember that all of life, all things need to be handed over to him. And so we, we aren't a people that pray. We are a people of prayer, okay? So that's a, that's a very important distinction. We are not a people who pray. We are a people of prayer. That is who we are because we are drawn back into right relationship with God, and now we're in constant communication, right? So one of the things that I always like to tell people is you don't have a time of prayer. You might have a time of dedicated prayer, like we had this morning, okay? But we are a people of prayer. So just as the priests would come in, their responsibility wasn't like they hit the stopwatch and say, okay, now it's time to start praying. They were to be a people of prayer. That's who we are, always offering up prayers to God. We pray throughout life, not just pray in moments of life. But all of these smells reminded the priests of their personal experience, right? They've been, let's just recall their story really quickly. Where have they been? They've been slaves for a long time, 400 years. They were called to leave, but there are all these plagues. Can you imagine? I mean, it's been a long time since we talked about the plagues, almost a year ago, over a year ago now. Like, let's don't forget that. <clears throat> these plagues would have been frightening. So these are people who now no fear, right? So you put the blood on the doorpost, and we'll save your kids. How do we know? You trust the Lord. And so they did. They responded, and they put blood on the doorpost, and God preserved their children. And that was what instigated their final departure in the beginning of what is the Exodus. So these smells would remind God's people of who he is and what he's doing and who he's calling them to be. And so our prayer is that every time we gather together, we don't have gold in this room, uh, any of it actually. Uh, we generally don't even have speakers that work, okay? So we don't have a nice, we don't need nice things because now we are the temple. We are the tabernacle. Just remember John chapter 1, like God became man and he what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And so we are those people. We now are the church. We are the temple of God in the world. So we don't need stained glass. We don't need uh, gold plates. We don't need, I mean, we, like, we've got coffee cans back there. We have plastic dishes for the bread. They might be glass, be careful. Um, we've got, I mean, it's just everything that we own fits in a trailer, and then it leaves and sits in a storage unit all week, okay? And yet we are no less a people of God than the people who have all the ornate things of the world, Okay. What I hope, my prayer for us, is as we uh, continue as a church, that we would never be distracted by those things. Who knows how long we'll be here? But if we were ever to move into a permanent facility, we can't be distracted by all the stuff and forget who God has called us to be. But if, if you could remember one thing this morning from the altar of incense, it's this, that God hears the prayers of his people. God hears your prayers. He does. That is his promise to us. 
And he fulfills that promise through Jesus, who is our intercessor. So what I want to do is I want to run through a few passages, right? We're saying everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so what I want us to do is just to see some of those fulfillments. As Jesus is the great high priest, he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And because of Jesus now, God the Father hears our prayer. Isaiah 53 says this, this is verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah, by the way, is in the Old Testament pointing forward to the coming Christ. Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? I got you. Amen. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, it says, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Earlier in Hebrews, we've read this one probably a dozen times throughout Exodus. We might read it a dozen more, okay? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? Jesus is Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were yet without sin. Praise God. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what I want to do before we move into the census tax, and you're going to be so impressed by the way I transitioned into that, that you might give me a raise. Oftentimes, we use, in, in prayer, okay, talking specifically about prayer, we use in Jesus' name as kind of a genie's bottle, right? We rub the bottle, we say in Jesus' name, and then we think that God's going to grant our wishes. One of the things that we see the disciples doing basically from the moment Jesus calls them to come follow him until they deny him, okay, is this, teach us to pray. They also ask a lot, who's the greatest? But let's don't worry about that today. That's a sermon for a different day. But they ask us, they ask Jesus over and over and over and over again, teach us, Lord, to pray. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so if the disciples who are walking closely with Jesus, arm in arm, in the sandy shores of Galilee, how much more should we then be drawn to, Lord, teach us to pray? But we use in Jesus' name as this way to hopefully convince God that our desires are better than his will. Right? Lord, if you would just give me this job in Jesus' name. Right? And not all of that's bad. Okay? It's only bad when the desires of our fleshly heart convince us that what we desire is what God desires for us. What God desires for us is proximity to you. Okay? He wants you. He wants to be present in your life. In Jesus' name, by the way. But it's not a salutation like, I write you a note, and, and sincerely, Stephen. 
We don't use in Jesus' name that way. When we say in Jesus' name, it's the same type of faith of the hemorrhaging woman who touched the cloak and said, in Jesus' name, would you heal me? Would God have still been sovereign if the woman continued to bleed for another 12 years? Absolutely. That woman died eventually. We don't, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm pretty sure because she's not here. It's the same thing with a 12-year-old girl, right? It was the faith of her dad that restored her to life in Jesus' name. There's power in his name. But here's the things that I want you to see. There's three things. You're going to be on the screen. The first is that we have been invited in, just like the priests. One of the things that we have in common with the priests is the priests were all sinful, Okay, there was nothing righteous about the priests. They did nothing to earn doing the work of God in the temple. And neither did we. God has invited us in. Okay? The second thing is that we can have confidence. Right? We can have confidence that God will hear and he will help. Because this is who he's proven himself to be. He will hear and he will help. And sometimes his helping is revealing to you that the desires of your heart is sinful. Okay? In Jesus' name. Right? The third thing that I want you to see is that we can rest assured that God is working for our good. Always. Always. Even in the hard stuff. So last week, if you weren't here, and I know there's a few of you in here who weren't here last week, so we had all of our children in the room, which praise God you're here this week and not last week, okay? So we, we do this about once a quarter. We invite all the young kids in, and we do it intentionally, and sometimes it's chaotic, and, you know, I mean, parents in the room, it's like it's hard, and like, oh, you think you're serving us, but you're not, you know? I've got three young kids, so I get it, okay? Fully get it. But one of the things I always ask my kids, and one of my children is in the room today, is like, what'd you learn today? And so last week, we're talking about the consecration of the priests, and I said that, that God is going to get rid of all of our trash. That was a quote. And so I asked Brayden, who's, who's nine, I was like, so what'd you, what was the takeaway? He's like, one day, when Jesus comes back, there's gonna be no trash in the world. He's like, the ground's gonna be clean. And I was like, yes, you're right, but you might have missed the point, right? Kids say the something, right? So it's, it's amazing, though, to see these things, but we can rest assured that God is working for our good. Jesus is interceding continually, constantly, and forever for us in heaven, and the Holy Spirit is interceding in our hearts. So we don't approach the throne of God because we've been good or we've done anything right. We approach the throne of God because Jesus has come down to earth to save us, to restore us, to redeem us back to the presence of God. His blood made a way for our prayers to be heard, and I pray we never forget that. We haven't been sprinkled, we've been covered by his blood. Now here comes the transition you've all been waiting for, the census tax, okay? I think I nailed that. Uh, verse 11, let's read it. The Lord said to Moses, I didn't write the Bible, by the way, okay? This is, this is the word of the Lord. This is, he put it in place where he wanted to be put in place, and then it was fools like me who have to try to Get from the altar of incense to the census tax, okay? So the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom. Go ahead and underline that word ransom. It was even in the psalm that we read this morning. Each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Do you even hear the echoes of Egypt? There'll be no plagues. This is a promise. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. 
The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take, verse 16, the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Now, first thing, this is not a tithe. This is a tax, okay? And everyone gives exactly the same thing, okay? So what does that do? Here's, this is a quote from A.W. Pink. He, he writes this. When God numbers, and just, there's a book in the Bible, by the way, called, I know you haven't read it, but there's a book in the Bible called Numbers, and some of you have started it and then you quit, right? That's okay. There's grace for you. Uh, what I hope, though, is that Exodus helps you understand numbers, right? You can't understand Leviticus. You can't understand numbers without understanding what's happening in Exodus, okay? God's calling them to number him because in their numbering, he is reminding them of what he's done. Every time that number grows, they went from 12 to 70 to hundreds of thousands, right? So, A.W. Pink, when God numbers or orders anything to be numbered, taking the sum of them denotes that they belong to him and that he has the sovereign right to do with them as he pleases, The action itself says of the things numbered, these are mine, and I assign them their place as I will. Here's what's beautiful, is he knows, God knows all the hairs on your head, right? He's numbered them, but he knows all of us personally. He's numbered us, and one day we will stand, and God will give a number, and those number who will be part of his family, we will all declare we are his. He assigns us our place as he wills. By paying this tax, the Israelites were acknowledging that they belonged to God. This was a response. They're not paying for forgiveness. They'd already been forgiven. Okay? So there's two things. There's two purposes for the tax that I want us to see. The first is that it supports the work that takes place at the tabernacle. This is a lot of stuff in here. Okay? I mean, we've been in here, I I don't know exactly how many weeks, but it's been a few weeks. There's been a lot of gold. There's been a lot of purple and scarlet yarn. There's been a lot of things being brought in right? So part of the purpose of the text is to support the work that takes place at the tabernacle. And the second one is that it symbolically reminds the Israelites of their equal need for atonement and acceptance before God. So here's what's beautiful about this. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status in a room. If you're rich or if you're poor, this tax in particular says you are a sinner separated by God, and God has in his grace and sovereignty chosen to bring you back into his family. You're equal with the person who has no money, Okay? So the census tax levels the playing field. It's a reminder to all of them of their equal need for salvation. Everyone pays the same thing because everyone has the same need. Now this word ransom in verse 12, okay? This word ransom specifically points us to Jesus. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, okay? It says this, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this tax that was viewed as a ransom, right? It's the, you all have the same need for salvation, is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the ultimate ransom, who once and for all pays the ransom to bring God's people back into God's presence. It's a beautiful picture, okay? So I know a lot of times we can look at things like the census text and be like, okay, Lord, I'm what, we're probably 75 days into the chronological Bible reading plan. What are we doing here, right? 
All of this is pointing us to a good and perfect Savior who comes and says, hey, that tax that you owed in the tabernacle, I'm the tax, and I've laid it all down, and now you're good. Okay? So that's the beauty here. I pray that you don't miss it. Now, bronze basin, okay? And this is the last bit. I promise. For the day. No more changes. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze. Okay? So not gold. Okay? A basin of bronze. With its stand of bronze for washing, you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Now remember, being a priest was a dirty job. This was the original Mike Rowe episode, okay? It was a very, they're covered in blood all of the time, okay? They're constantly bringing and slaughtering animals and having to burn them. They're covered in ash, they're covered in smoke. It was a dirty job. And so they're in constant need of washing. And the imagery here is that we, as sinful people separated from God, are in need of a washing. We need to be cleansed. Verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not, what does it say? They may not die. Okay? Again, parents in the room, if you have young kids, like we encourage our kids to wash their hands before they eat because I've seen what you picked up today, and we don't want you to die, right? It's right here in the Bible. Verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. This washing station was used for practical and for worshipful purposes. It's practical because of the work they are doing in making the sacrifices, right? But it's worshipful as they are washed clean before they enter into the service of God. This is what we do in baptism, right? It's the symbol of washing. Our great high priest, Jesus, has no need for a bronze basin, though. He has no need to be washed clean because he's never been dirty. This was, there's no ritual that he has to partake in. He's holy and innocent, in Christ, we have been spiritually washed clean. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Not we are faithful. He is faithful. And He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So listen, here's what that means. Whatever the thing is for you, whatever the thing is well, last night or this morning, or whatever sin you keep continuing to carry, whatever unrighteousness that you think God can't clean off of you, he can, and he has. I love Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. This is a passage that uh, is being used. We use it a lot in premarital counseling, okay? Um, but it is, it is about marriage, but it's not about marriage. It's about Christ, okay, and how he views the church. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church, and then what? Gave himself up for her. Okay, so we, we think, yeah, so listen, husbands in the room, you probably should hear that, okay? But, but everyone else in the room, you should probably hear that too, because this is who Christ is. Husbands, love your wife as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Remember this word? Sanctify. The church needs to be sanctified, be brought more in likeness of Christ, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church. So one day we will stand before the presence of God, and Christ is going to say, hey, here is my church. 
Here they are. They met in a gym, but they're good. They are with me. Okay? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there is a message to the husbands in the room. But there's a message to every believer in the room as well. Jesus is our intercessor who's paid our ransom and cleansed us from all our sin. And he's invited us in. And he continues to invite you in. No matter how bad you are, no matter how dirty your hands and feet are. Here's what I know to be true. And I do know most of you in the room. You are far worse than you think you are. Me too. But here's what else I believe. You're far more loved than you could ever dream. And so for us, what does that mean? It means that we can, be, we can stand confidently, right? This is what the priests are trying to get to. Their confidence wasn't in themselves. Their confidence was in a process, right? If I wash just like this, or if I cut the animal just like this, or if I put the thing right here, if I don't touch this thing and I do touch this thing, then they could walk in with confidence. We don't have to do that. Our confidence is in Jesus because now we are the dwelling place of God on earth. So, we're 32 minutes in. So what? So we spent all this time talking about the tabernacle. All this time talking about the tent of meeting. All this time talking about the sacrifices and the gold and the bronze and the washing and the stuff and the oil and the, the spices that you know nothing about. So what? How then shall we live? That's the question. How then shall we live? And I think that a proper understanding of tabernacle theology motivates us to live lives pleasing to God. So while it doesn't necessarily matter what the thing is in your life that's keeping you from knowing God in the fullest form, we should strive for it. Not in order to earn more of his love, but because he has loved us. So we, we obey, we do good works, not so that God loves us more. Kids in the room hear that. We do it because we have been loved. We have been saved. As we're reminded of who God is, we're reminded of who we are in relation to him. So we're going to say, and I said it last week, but it doesn't matter. All, that, all the stuff, all the baggage, all the sin, all the trash. Braden's not here today. He's going to love that, though. He doesn't listen to the podcast either, so don't worry about it. But all of the stuff in our lives, we should work hard as Christians, because we've already been saved, to walk in righteousness. We should live lives according to Christ's purpose. So we should repent from our sin publicly and in community groups, family groups. We should turn from sin and run towards righteousness. So while those things no longer separate us from Christ, they do keep us from knowing him in a deeper, more profound way. And so whatever the habitual sin is in our lives, we should confess them and together as brothers and sisters walk in righteousness. We should take our sins seriously before God. That's how we should live, knowing that in Christ we've already been redeemed. One of the lines that Paul writes uh, is, why do I keep doing the things that I hate? Have, have, has that ever hit you hard? It does me almost daily. But one of the things that we have to remember is that grace isn't licensed to sin. Right? What is his response to that? Ooh, grace, we should sin more so grace could abound. And he slams, it was, he was Baptist, by the way, and he slammed his pulpit and he said, by no means, by no means. I'm just joking, by the way. Okay. 
I've got no proof that he was Baptist. Grace isn't a license to sin. It's a license to worship. And in our worship, we should draw, we should work hard, we should call each other out in love and good works to walk in Christ's likeness. We need to daily turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And our prayer as leaders of this church is that the communion table is that weekly constant reminder. You're far worse than you could ever imagine, and you're far more loved than you could ever believe. And so as we go to the table this morning, I pray that you would remember that. I pray that as we come into the presence, we're already here. Christ has promised to meet us here, that we would turn from our sin, confess our sin, and go to the table, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and worship him, his body broken and his blood spilled out for us as a ransom so that we can be brought near. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful for a time to gather. I'm thankful for uh, the book of Exodus, uh, just even in my own personal life, how it continues to, to call out and to draw my heart towards you. I pray that you would remind us all often of the great work that's been done in our lives because of Jesus, that we have been restored We have been brought back into the family, given a new name, given a seat at the table. We are the dwelling place. We are the tabernacle. So as we go and take communion this morning, I pray that you would help us to be reminded of the great work that you have done and the great work that you're calling us to participate in as priests in the world. And so let our worship be an incense of praise to you this morning. May you be well pleased as we wind our gathering down this morning. We're thankful. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.